John 14, 6, we've got it, we can put it on the screen or you can turn there. John 14, 6, it's a fascinating verse where Jesus in conversation with his disciples uh, basically boils it down um, in saying who he is. And he answers them with the words uh, that I am the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. There's an interesting correlation here in that we see truth show up as a propositional form. In other words, uh, things about me are true. If you made a statement about me, I'm the Son of God. If you made a statement about me that I'm the King or that I'm the Messiah, that those statements would be true. But truth also operates in a different sense in which it's what maps on to reality. And so when Jesus says, I'm the way, he means that I actually am the right path. Uh, there's many paths. I'm the right path. I'm the true path. Uh, I am the truth. What's true about me is true. It's universally true. It's not, it's not subjectively true. And then I'm the life. In other words, there's different ways you can pursue or look to find life, to find happiness, to find joy. But I'm actually the true one. I'm the one that um, you should be going to, to find life, to find joy, to find happiness, that there's this interesting correlation between truth and how we should live. Does that make sense? There's an interesting correlation between truth and how we should live, that truth is always, has always been connected to um, answers to the question of what should we now uh, do? What should we then do? How should we live? And so we see this crop up in different places too. We see it in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 is a fascinating thing. It's, it's one of the reasons why the Jewish culture in exile in Europe and in other places was able to kind of maintain its own identity, what it looked like, because they had this way of understanding truth and how it affected life and how you're supposed to pass that from generation to generation that allowed these communities in exile to exist for thousands of years as a distinct Jewish community. And what they take as kind of their marching orders is this, that these are the commands of God, the decrees and laws of the Lord, that your God directed me, this is Moses talking, to teach you and observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and the commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord your God of your, of the Lord your, God of your ancestors promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, by the way, we know this because this is the verse that Jesus grabs when he gives the greatest commandment. What is the greatest of the commands? And Jesus answers with this. Now, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your heads. If you've ever gone to Israel and if you go to the Wailing Wall um, or even in Jesus' time, you see the little boxes uh, on people's heads that they strap around. It's literally a part of the law that's put into the little box so that it's, it's actually on the forehead. In other words, a very symbolic gesture to remind people that this is supposed to be on our minds. 
this is supposed to be at, the, at, the, at the, the center or the forefront of what we're thinking about. And then it also says that you would tie them on your doorposts, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When I married Tamara, she'd spent a, a semester in Israel and she came back with a little wood box, same kind of idea. This little wood box was supposed to contain a, par- a portion of the law and it was to be nailed on the frame of your door. So that as you come and as you go, that you're being reminded that that we should be reflecting on, thinking about, submitting to the law of God. That what is true, the law, is what's supposed to govern how we live. There's a correlation between truth and ethics. Does that make sense? And that this is a lived out reality and when it's lived out to such a high degree it carries from one generation to the next that your children grow up in a home where this becomes true for them and true in such a way that they're able to own it and model it so that when they have kids it's true for those kids as well that what is true in our understanding of God is going to shape the way we live and do so to such a high degree that it carries forward does that make sense Uh, Interesting thing between truth and how we're supposed to live, this was true in Greek philosophy as well. You have three different schools of ancient Greek philosophy. You had the skeptics, which really were trying to ask the question, how can we know anything or, or can we know anything? The Epicureans and the Stoics. And the interesting thing is we talk about these people as, as if they're very different. They have very different beliefs of what was true about the world, but they all aimed at one thing. All three of these Greek kind of ways of thinking all were answering the question, how should you live and, and find the right way to be happy? And so the Stoics were answering that question that with Stoic virtue and, and the right kind of living, in other words, living the way that you were designed to live, that over time you're going to grow into the right kind of person and enjoy the right kind of happiness. For Aristotle, you had to be old to be happy. It was like a learned reality, a skill that came to those with age because it was about how you lived. To the Epicureans, about maximizing pleasure and not necessarily like base pleasures, but they just said maximizing the things that give pleasure to human beings is the way that we're going to find to to be the, the happiest. For the skeptics, they were trying to answer that question too without knowing kind of final answers on on the nature of the universe, how do we then live in society and maximize the greatest good or find our happiness? So they all were trying to answer this kind of basic question. Now, It's important to understand that because we come to modern times and there's a real interesting relationship between truth and how we're to live or how society goes about answering this question, how how we should live. Does that make sense? Um, Truth, as in what is true of the universe, what do we know to be true? As Christians, what do we believe to be true? And then how we live. And in the Christian tradition, we're so focused on the truth part that you had people like Soren Kierkegaard in Denmark calling the church to account and trying to teach them that they actually misunderstood truth in the sense that what they're paying lip service to as being true, God is true, Christianity is true, if that wasn't what their actions showed or demonstrated, Kierkegaard was saying, you actually don't believe it. In other words, what you believe is cashed out in or demonstrated or made true by your actions. Does that make sense? I can say that I have um, faith in my ability to pick numbers, that I'm really good at 
at random things, that I have prophetic gifts beyond anyone else sitting here, and that I could call the lottery right, you know? Um, I can say anything I want and believe it to be true or say that I believe it to be true, but if my actions, one, if I don't ever play the lottery, because anyone that thinks they could hit it right would probably be playing it. Two, if I play the lottery and don't hit it right, then it kind of shows that what I'm claiming to be true is not actually true. If I'm saying that God is over everything and that everything kind of should be submitted to that, but I go and serve just myself, then what I'm saying is true is actually worth nothing. And Kierkegaard would say, no, shut your mouth, let me watch your life, and through your life, how you live, I'll know, and everyone else will know what is actually true about you, what you actually truly believe. Does that make sense? So we have this interesting thing of hypocrisy that's always grown up, about, uh, up around the heels of religion because we're so centered on doctrine and truth that we can get really excited about having the right formulas and begin over time to think that that's the, the kind of summum bonum or the finish line of our inquiry and not realize that truth is only true when it flows into how we live or how we answer this question, um, what's the right way to find happiness or joy in life? Does that make sense? Um, I'm going, what I want to do is frame this morning a, an, a deep understanding of how truth is working out in our society and then come back next week and we're going to talk specifically about the Bible and this book that has existed going back to the Old Testament times and then in the New Testament period for 2,000 years and is the authority or the standard, the word standard is what, what um, the word canon means, that, that scripture or the Bible is the canon that, that everything is measured by for Christians, that it's the standard for us. And so I'm kind of wanting to, to, to get to that next week but locate it within a context. So Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The interesting thing is, God has three other ways other than Jesus in which he speaks to us or reveals things to us. Pete, last week, uh, took great pains to demonstrate that God still speaks to us, that God is a God uh, of relationship, a God of communication, a God of words, and that God still speaks to us. And historically, we have four different ways that we would argue that God speaks to or talks to his creation. And one of those we just used, and that's Jesus, that in Jesus we see the Father pictured, that we see the character, the values of the Father, we see the Father or, or, or God in the flesh more specifically. So we get an accurate picture or representation of what truth is. Other ways, three other ways, if you want to write them down, are through nature, so natural revelation, uh, that, that we see in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. In other words, they're speaking to us truth about God or the creator of the universe. Paul talks in Romans, and if, uh, if you wanted to look it up, it'd be in Romans chapter two, but Paul talks to the Jewish people in Romans, and he's, he's doing this really interesting thing of calling them to account, saying that you, you say you have true, true knowledge about God, and that the Gentiles don't have that, but um, the interesting thing is, if you know God's will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, but if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instru uh, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? In other words, if you say you have truth, 
but you're not teaching yourself that truth for how you're going to live, do you really have truth? You who say that people shouldn't do certain things, do you do them yourselves? And then he goes on in verse 25 and says, circumcision has value, which is a symbol of, of Judaism. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised, the Gentiles, keep the law's requirements and they, not, um, and and they will not be regarded as the, uh, I'm sorry, let me slow down. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. This is Paul being a scholar and a theologian and saying, you have these Gentiles here that don't have anything else other than what they know by natural revelation, what they know by kind of being human being made in the image of God, and yet they're able to pull down from that traces of, of how they should live, that, that you should live in a certain way and have a certain kind of ethics, that you should be a, a moral person, that love matters. There's these things that the Gentiles have just from natural law. And does that not judge you, those who have the written law, because you're not doing the very things that they're doing? So one way that we, we know from God or that we learn about God is through natural revelation. Uh, then the other one, um, the would be the third this morning, so Jesus, natural revelation. The third would be uh, special revelation, which would be God's direct, uh, I'm sorry, through written revelation. So the Bible would be, or scripture would be God's written revelation to us, his people, passed down from generation to generation. If you're going to talk to people and, and you want that to be recorded over time and that everybody's able to see or hear the, the very same thing, then you want to do it in writing. Um, writing the written word is a deeply spiritual thing, a, a deeply profound thing. And from the beginning of, of the faith, it has been a recorded and passed down tradition and that becomes the rule or the authority for us. So we have uh, the natural revelation, we have the written revelation, and then we have what would be called specific or divine revelation, uh, which would be God speaking directly to people through the Holy Spirit, okay? So God speaking to you um, and giving you insight or knowledge either into scripture so that you understand how that applies to you, uh, speaking to you through your conscience so that you know what sin is or, or you're steered in a certain way, or as we interact with God or pray, that there's spiritual guidance that, that literally helps us navigate the decisions that we have in life. Now, if you take any one of the, these three that are not the, uh, the messianic revelation in Jesus, but you have nature, scripture, or, or specific divine revelation, if you take any one of these three without the other two, you end up very lopsided. So if you take just science or just kind of the natural world, and that's all you have, you're going to lose sight of a lot of things, and you're going to be very unbalanced. It's going to be very hard for you to pass that down to generation to generation, what God's heart is for humanity, okay? It's a very objective or sterile way of coming at the world. If you have just scripture, but you don't look at the natural world with friendly eyes, that this is God's creation, that we can know it, you begin to have a kind of a hostile view of science 
or if you look at divine revelation or specific revelation, you begin to be very skeptical of people that want to talk to God and you want to kind of brush that away. The charismatic people that, that say they have this relationship with God, uh, I want to rule that out because it seems hard to control or hard to verify or people begin to speak prophetically and I've seen damage come from that. So I want to get rid of that and I just want to say that scripture, which is where I'm more comfortable, that that's, that's the only way. So if you have just scripture and you rule out the other ones, you end up in a problem. Or if you are to the excesses of the charismatic faith and you say, um, God speaks to me directly, who needs to really study? Who needs to really go deep? Who needs to understand Greek? Who needs those things? Because I can just talk to God and God will tell me that oftentimes you can, you can see a charismatic excess where people can become spiritually abused because there's nothing that reigns that in or gives check to that, filters it. So when I got to this town, I had people in their 20s, Tamara and I did, students coming to us uh, who had been a part of college groups or different environments where people would come to them and say, God told us you're supposed to marry that guy. And if you don't, then you're basically going against the will of God. Um, and, and it was particularly girls. These girls would come to us incredibly beat up and, and really going through some deep spiritual abuse in that, right? Uh, now, for, for me, I thought, well, that's a pretty good trick. I'm, I'm wondering if somebody paid someone 20 bucks. Like, that's not, a, that's not funny, is it? But, um, <laughs> but it actually is. Uh, there's a, a sense in which we can use our zeal or our spirituality to overstep bounds and begin to try to control other people. Now, you can feel as convicted as you want about anything that God has said, so convicted that you think it's a matter of life and death. But there's a right and appropriate way that you do that. You go to someone and you say, I feel and believe that God has spoken clearly to me and that I need to tell you as a matter of conscience this thing. And I believe it very strongly and I'm compelled to tell you this, but at the end of the day, um, it's your life, it's your decision, and I will respect what it is you decide or how, how you respond to what I'm bringing you. And you always refrain from overstepping and saying, I'm going to now take control of your life, or if you don't do what I say, I'm going to talk bad about you or judge you. Uh, even Paul had prophecies given to him that if you do these certain things and you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be taken captive, and you know, all of these things are going to happen. And Paul says, that's nice to know, but I'm still going to go to Jerusalem. So in our zeal for uh, desiring insight and, and messages from God that the Holy Spirit would speak to us, we do that, but we always check it against Scripture because God does not speak out of two sides of his mouth. Uh, we always do it in a mature way that says, I could be wrong. In fact, I have oftentimes been wrong. And sometimes I'm right in terms of the message, but I'm wrong in terms of the tone. Does that make sense? So the fact that I can be fallible or wrong means that I hold it loosely. So you have these different ways in which God speaks, but they all have problems if they're taken kind of by themselves and not used in harmony. If they're used in harmony, I, th I think those three, natural revelation, God's written revelation, and God's specific or divine revelation, begin to form a triangle by which we triangulate truth. How we come to know things how we come to believe things, and then how we answer this question, how then should we live? 
And that sitting in the middle of this triangle emerges the face of Jesus Christ because in Christ we see all these things and Christ himself is saying, I'm the head that's giving direction and I'm leading you not only into true knowledge but into the right kind of living. That's why Jesus didn't come just preaching but calling people to discipleship. Jesus didn't come just sharing messages. Jesus came bringing people around him and saying, follow me so that I can show you the true way to life, life everlasting, and that he would be able to give us his joy so that our joy would be complete. In other words, the best kind of life even here and now. And so Jesus himself is kind of becoming the picture or the face of how we walk forward this way. All right, so I want to fast forward to the Civil War here and, and kind of show why this matters in the American context, the context that we've all grown up in and the worldview that we've inherited. But so we basically have a faith that, that is saying there are absolute truths. We have a country that built into its foundation with the Declaration of Independence that we hold these things to be self-evident, meaning that it is absolutely true and that everybody knows it to be true, that we're made in the image of God, um, that we're made by a maker. Now, we didn't apply that to everybody. We were discriminatory and how we applied that truth of being made in the image of God. But our country was built on this idea of absolute truth, grounding the fact that we're, um, we have been created by God, we are his handiwork, okay? That's the way we operated at a foundational level, even for non-Christians, even for people of different faiths, that in America, we weren't necessarily a Christian nation, but we were built on this Judeo-Christian foundation of absolute truth and what that meant for how we understood ourselves and how we were supposed to live. Um, that's why the abolitionists began to fight against slavery, saying that, that certain people should not, cannot own other people, that that's absolutely not true because these people are made in the image of God and this violates, therefore, how we should live, okay? Um, now, in the Civil War, the interesting thing is that this, this all begins to shift. So uh, the American Civil War begins in 61, it ends in 65, and uh, during the Civil War, you have a group of people from Boston, Boston intellectuals, that are fighting and serving in the war as people that have been a part of the abolitionist movement. Um, primary, uh, primarily figures like William James, uh, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who actually saw battle on numerous occasions and was shot four different times. But these people that were abolitionists and intellectuals go into this war and begin to fight to free these slaves. Now, in 1859, right before the Civil War, something interesting happened. There was a, a very famous book published. Anyone know what was published in 1859? No, that was a little bit earlier. And that had a lot to do with shaping the culture of how we, how we viewed slavery. But 1859, a British, a British scholar with a really cool beard, Charles Darwin, um, wrote uh, on the origin of the species in 1859. So origin of the species, which he waited till the very end of his life, and it was only when someone else was about to publish the views that he had developed of natural selection, did he rush and publish kind of what he'd been working on his whole life. And this comes out in 1859, but because of the Civil War and the distance from England to America, it's not till um, 
roughly after the World War, towards the end of the Civil War, and certainly at, at, uh, at the conclusion of that war, that this book arrives and begins to make waves in, in the intellectual circles and communities in America. And what it begins to undercut is simply this idea that there is a creator, uh, and more specifically, if there's not a creator, that there's absolute truth with regard to who we are as people and if there's no absolute truth with regard to who we are as people, there's therefore no absolute truth as regards to how we should live. Does that make sense? Okay, if we fast forward a little bit, I just want to read something by Jean-Paul Sartre. And so the French existentialist who really carries this view kind of forward, wrote this, man can count on no one but himself. He is alone, abandoned on earth in the midst of his infinite responsibilities, without help, with no other aim than the one he sets for himself, with no other destiny than the one he forges for himself on this earth. So Darwin began to cut at, at the confidence in or the belief in absolute truth, that there was something absolutely true, capital T truth, about who men and women are, that, that we're not made in the image of a God, we're actually the byproduct of chance. And if that's the case, you can't say there's a normative ethic, a normative way, a universal way that we all should then live. There's nothing that we're all aiming at. There is no North Star. Do you understand that? There is no destiny other than the one that man forges for himself on this earth. And so Nietzsche, in the late 1800s, the German philosopher, was famous for kind of saying 20, 30 years after Darwin that culture was doing something really interesting, that we were taking all of this kind of newfound atheism and we were playing with it and finding different ways to live, but we were doing it without actually addressing the fact that we were on top of a foundation that was a biblical foundation of transcendent or absolute truth, that there is a creator, we're made in that, that creator's image, male and female, we're made in his image, and, and that there's therefore things about us that are, that are absolute or necessary. And so Nietzsche was looking around and saying, you guys are all playing with new ways of living, but nobody's addressing the fact that, that underneath this is a foundation that has been ripped away. You're acting as if there's still a foundation that holds us all together as society. Or, or Western culture, which was built on Scripture or the Bible. Western culture it has Scripture or Christianity as an inextricable thread all the way through it. And Nietzsche uh, began to kind of write about this in his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. The madman comes in and he's, he's kind of crying out that God is dead, God is dead. And the whole idea was that Nietzsche was trying to cry out to civilization that you're walking around on a foundation that no longer exists. God is dead, and with him, everything that was built on that idea is gone as well. The whole thing is gone. And so Nietzsche really came up with this idea that we have to start all over and create for ourselves a new tablet of virtues, which was kind of um, giving homage back to the, the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. And he's saying we have to forge for ourselves individually etch for ourselves a new way of living. And he began to have beautiful language, Nietzsche did. He's a very persuasive writer, but he used to talk about giving style to your character and trying to find a new way of existing such that you become a part of evolution itself and you become the ubermensch or the overman, which is where we get Superman, 
which is a big part of our culture, um, but that you would become a new formed, new kind of person with a whole different worldview that didn't borrow from these classical ideas of a creator and the fact that there are truths in this universe. So this is Nietzsche. Now, in the States, these men that fought the Civil War, they're dealing with the same problem, that there is no, in their minds, no capital T truth anymore. So how are we going to move forward as a society? And the big thing is that's motivating them is that 600,000 people died in the Civil War just prior uh, to this time period. 600,000 people. And people like Oliver Wendell Holmes begin to ask the question, was it worth it? If slaves aren't really made in the image of God because there is no God and there is no transcendent truth, was it worth fighting this war? Was it worth 600,000 people dying? Or would it have been better if we used the processes of, of democracy over time to try and address this? Would it have been better if we went about it a different way? But he begins to question the loss of that much life when, when there is no sense of an absolute like the abolitionists had it. And so for, and by the way, we have pictures of uh, James who became one of the leading psychologists. James is the one with the beard. Uh, that's Oliver Wendell Holmes. Here's James. James becomes one of the leading psychologists or one of the first psychologists in America and then a great philosopher. And he brings what comes to be known as pragmatism into the areas of religion, into the areas of philosophy uh, and, and some other sub-disciplines. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who died in his 90s, the next picture, is the longest serving Supreme Court justice we've ever had. Uh, he spent some 30 years on the bench, much of that as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Oliver Wendell Holmes shot four times in the Civil War, realizing there is no absolute truth, uh, begins to articulate in his letters to people that the problem is when we think that we know. When we, have, when we think that we have some idea of what's true, that's the problem. And his notion was that when you have these people that, that hold to absolute truths, that they're going to be very extreme, very extreme. And when you get people that hold to absolute views and they're that extreme, sooner or later, if you have an opposing side, they're going to come to blows over it. Sooner or later, you're going to come to a civil war. Is that not right? Because people hold these beliefs so strongly. And so for Holmes, the idea was to let the democratic processes work this stuff out and to begin to let, say, the Constitution, not the Declaration of Independence, shape our thinking. And so for him, the idea was these extremes um, are, we need to push those to the margins and take the middle of America and begin to define truth in relation to that majority. And so this is where pragmatism is born. Um, Charles Saunders Pierce, William James, Oliver Wendell Holmes. That truth is what has cash value. Cash value in what sense? Cash value in the sense that it keeps us from fighting. That we stay together. That we, we still are the people moving forward in a society of law and order. Remember, America was really the first great democracy I mean, Athens going all the way back is kind of where we get some of the ideas. But America is the beginning of this great democratic experiment. And they're saying that what's going to kill democracy are people with extreme views. So we're going to begin to say that truth is pragmatic. It's what works for keeping us together and able to move forward in some kind of an orderly way. And the truth that people claim on the sides, that's dangerous. 
But that's okay because if the majority moves forward, sooner or later, we out-educate from the populace those kinds of extreme views because people move along. So if you're a teacher, um, you might know the name John Dewey, but John Dewey was, was a little bit younger but emerged as one of the leading pragmatists. He was an atheist. He was uh, a secular humanist. And he did arguably as much as anyone else to shape our American education system. And the idea for him was it's not just about teaching information, but the students we're teaching are a great social experiment for the, ne the next generation. So this is where we get to, to kind of make the front edge or the tip of the spear with regard to our progressive agenda or, say, liberal agenda of, of how we're moving forward. Now, not all of this is bad. Don't get me wrong. Um, without this kind of working, you can't deal with maybe um, racism in the South, segregation, things that we would all look at and say, that's bad. The, the, the process of pragmatic truth and the way that edu our education system works and the way that the Supreme Court works as it evolves in some respects has some really good outcomes to it. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that we're going to find ourselves, if we haven't already found ourselves, in a place where Christians believing in absolute truth are the extremists on the side. And that... Pretty soon, as this is continuing to evolve and go, those that hold these transcendent beliefs in a God, in a certain kind of morality, in a certain kind of way of living, in a certain kind of economics or, or patterning of things, begin to be the dangerous people. And the idea is, um, that's okay, we can out-educate it from your children if we have them long enough. Now, this doesn't make teachers bad, doesn't mean that every school has an agenda. It means the, the system as a whole in a secular country is designed to evolve in a certain way where, where political correctness is becoming the lowercase truth and that's what rolls forward as people continually um, go through the education process. Curriculum gets updated, book get, books get rewritten, and again, this is, this is just what is. Sometimes it works out really well and sometimes it comes directly into conflict with, with the Christian understanding of absolute truth or the fact that we're supposed to follow a God in a certain kind of way and live a certain kind of life. Um, I spoke to a group recently on this that's very scared of the fact that, that the country's going the way it is and the threat that that's going to cause to religious liberties. And I had to remind them that we all, we all like this process um, in certain instances. If we went to Afghanistan right now and we found some jihadis and we saw them teaching their children to become extremists, we would look at that and say, we got to get those kids away from those adults and we got we to gotta normalize or balance that out so that it doesn't reproduce that extremism, right? Most of us would say that's what we've got to do. And so there are a lot of people in America that are looking at Christians and that's the same view they have with us. And so we can't just see it you know, black and white. We have to realize that, that that mechanism or that process or that way of thinking, we have it too. But we also stand in the crosshairs of some people that are looking at us and saying, these people can't continue the way that they've, they've been. Their views are toxic to uh, the secular society that we're trying to build. And it's going to begin to affect, is already affecting schools and will affect churches all the way on down. And it's an interesting thing to realize uh, that there will come a time in America where it's not just status quo for you to be a Christian and go to church. 
that the church itself, that the Christian community itself, is going to be a community in exile. Meaning, when we step out of our Christian community, we don't find ourselves at home in broader culture. And I think all of us, including myself, have grown up in a privileged position. We have a lot of religious liberty or privilege in this country. And we can walk out of church and we can walk into businesses or stores or just on the street and assume a certain kind of familiarity or, or consensus with regard to the world, with regard to what's true, with regard to how people ought to live, with regard to a whole lot of things, that we walk out of this environment into a relatively similar environment. Maybe it drops five degrees or 10 degrees, but, but it doesn't really affect us. We don't notice it that much. And there's, there's a process going on right now where I think it's a healthy thing for us to realize we have to think through what do we believe is, is true and what are the implications for that on how we live? What do we believe is true with the way God has revealed himself in nature, the way God has revealed himself in scripture, the way God reveals himself to us directly through the Holy Spirit and the picture that we see in the face of Jesus Christ? What is it that God has revealed to be true and what are the implications therefore on how we follow Christ or how we live in this world where we are strangers and aliens, where in some sense we are an exiled people that are out of step to some respect with empire. Those that are trying to live kingdom values aren't going to harmonize with the empire. Now, empire, as Walter Brueggemann defines it, is simply the social, political, economic realities or powers that are trying to set themselves up as the ultimate definer of reality. The social, political, economic powers that are trying to set themselves up as the ultimate definer of reality. Now, we're in a position where we're bombarded from the time we get on the computer to the time we turn on and then turn off the TV to the people that we, we interact with in culture by value systems that are, being, that are being formed and informed by empire, by consumerism, by individualism, by all sorts of other things that are actually radically different than the kind of life that God would have us lead as we follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, I think it's been easy up until now to not see that radical disjunct because, you know, it was kind of a quasi-Christian culture. And so we've had this wonderful phenomenon where, where we call it cultural Christians, where we come to church on Sunday, we talk about our beliefs or what we think is true, but then we look a lot like our post-Christian culture that still um, kind of looks a little bit like, smells a little bit like Christianity, so you kind of feel like I'm Christian in culture, I'm Christian in the church, I'm just kind of Christian, even though at the end of the day I'm really serving myself. So this interesting phenomenon of cultural Christianity is not going to be the case anymore. That we're going to have to understand that when we walk into culture, and if we're trying to live out a different kind of life, that we are going to look very different that we have to stop doing some of the things that maybe we used to do. We have to, to maybe say no to some of the friends that want us to join them in the endeavors they're doing, that we might need to look differently at our entertainment or our recreation. Might need to look different at how much time we spend with family and that we really are able to say um, the truth that we hold and the way that informs how we're gonna live, I have to wash you with that Every day, my children, 
that when we're driving in the car, we have to talk about what wisdom is, what we know to be true about God, why we do the things we do, how we can see God at work in our life, which confirms the existence of God or that God actually is still speaking to us today. We have to surround ourselves and create time for that, whether it's at church or we just do it on our own with our own table and the food and the drink that we have there to surround ourselves with people that affirm and encourage and sojourn with us as we walk through that wilderness and that they encourage our children or that they're role models for our kids so that, again, we're becoming a community that over time is able to exist and perpetuate itself in a culture that's not going to help us in any way, shape, or form. And so this idea of lowercase truth, pragmatic truth that is always kind of evolving and wrapping up whatever the 80% majority are going to be okay with and it's going to keep the peace is, is something that, that does work for a democracy. It does. Um, but the interesting thing is Reinhold Niebuhr in his uh, book, Children of Light, Children of Darkness, Reinhold Niebuhr was a liberal theologian at Union Seminary. He was one of the people that Bonhoeffer came over to study with and to be around but Reinhold Niebuhr wrote this book, Children of Light, Children of Darkness, and, and prophesied, whether, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but what his argument was, was that democracies sow the seeds of their own destruction in their very formation. In other words, they, they're, they're born with an idea of absolute truth and that people have value, and that, that's why free speech matters, because everyone's voice matters, because truth matters, right? That they're born out of a certain value set, but because it has to include everybody, the government system has to be necessarily secular, which I agree with. I don't agree with prayer in schools, because if you had prayer in schools, you'd have to have everyone be able to pray in school, and there wouldn't be any education getting done if everybody had to turn on the loudspeaker. Um, so I, I don't necessarily feel that that like, like we did in the 50s or 60s as a Christian community, that it's about putting prayer in the schools and all that. I, I believe the education system has to be secular. And other forms of the government have to be secular because they serve all the people in this society. But what Niebuhr argued is a secular form of education eventually will, necessarily will, have to educate people in such a way that we lose touch with the absolute truths uh, the foundational truths that gave rise to that democracy in the first place. And again, I don't know if Niebuhr's right or wrong, but you can see the, the tension that exists. And we don't have to necessarily figure all that out. What I'm saying this morning is simply, as we come to talk about the Bible next week as the authority or the standard in the life of a believer, that we sit under and try and understand and obey. We don't sit above trying to judge or critique but it is the authority for us that when we come to that conversation, what we're really talking about is, is the nature of the beliefs that we hold, uh, the, the view of truth that we have, that some things are universal or normative, and that ultimately what that says about how we live or should live and how we're going to find happiness as a Christian community. And by the way, happiness is not a bad word. Um, joy is all throughout the New Testament. Uh, C.S. Lewis says it's every Christian's duty to be as happy or he, as he or she can be. It's not some kind of Christian virtue to be miserable. We should all be happy, but, but what Scripture argues is that happiness comes about in the right kind of obedience and in living the way that God designed for you to live. You don't create your own destiny. You come to understand your calling. 
And your faithfulness to that calling is where your ultimate happiness and satisfaction is going to be found. Not in trial and error, in trying every one of the latest fads that society is going to throw at you. Being really depressed and nihilistic and hoping that the next time that you try something or go after some new form of pleasure or throw away some um, other part of your ethical code, that then and, and maybe then you'll get some kind of a hit of pleasure that will actually make it all worth it. That kind of chasing your own destiny with no kind of moral compass is not what we're, we're going to find with Scripture. And so worldview matters. And I think more and more at Antioch, we have to say, what is the worldview that we're ascribing to and willing to hold to and willing to hold each other to as we move forward as a community of Christians encouraging one another to walk faithfully? Um, Father, uh, I pray that you'd give us a stomach for hard truth, that you'd give us eyes to see true truths, that you'd give us humility to separate out the things we want to be true or think might be true from the things that actually are true. Give us the ability to walk circumspectly to know that we can get it wrong a lot and then even when we get it right, we can sometimes do it with the wrong tone. So let us be careful with regard to truth or with regard to how we should live. Let us learn from history. Let us uh, sit carefully into the present and let us look to the future with hope, knowing that ultimately you're gonna be able to, uh, the only one that's gonna be able to lead us in the way that we, we truly should and ought to go. We pray that in Jesus Christ's name.